0: Storymakers.
1: Welcome to Storymakers, the podcast that delves into story craft and the creative life. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And we're joined today by Nina Schuyler. Hi, Nina. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming.
0: Yes. <laughs> So the translator won the 2014 Next Generation Indie Book Award for general fiction and was shortlisted for the William Soroyan International Writing Prize. It was named a recommended book by the San Francisco Chronicle and has been translated into Hebrew, Taiwanese, and Chinese. Nina Schuyler's first novel, The Painting, was a finalist for the Northern California Book Awards. It was also selected by the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the best books of 2004 and dubbed a fearless debut by MSNBC and a great debut by the Rocky Mountain News. It's been translated into Chinese, Portuguese, and Serbian. Her stories have been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and her poems and short stories have appeared in Ziziba, Santa Clara Review, Fugue, The Meadowland Review, The Battered Suitcase and other literary journals. She writes a column for Fiction Advocate that focuses on stunning sentences and reviews for books, uh, reviews for The Rumpus, um, The Children's Book Review, and The Children's Book Review. She teaches creative writing at the University of San Francisco and writing classes at Book Passage. She attended Stanford University for her undergraduate degree, earned a law degree at Hastings College of, of the Law, and an
1: MFA, an emphasis on poetry at San Francisco State University welcome nina thank you so much or actually things i didn't i didn't know that i learned in your bio but we'll we'll delve into those
0: (laughs) so we start each show with a check-in about what we are working on this week elizabeth do you want to kick that
1: off sure um i am uh, writing, just getting up early in the morning and writing new pages in my work in progress novel. And then later in the morning, typing them in and trying to kind of keep caught up with myself. Um, I feel really happy right now because I feel like I nailed the structure enough that, um, I can explore what comes in between kind of the posts, um, with confidence. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good right now about what I'm doing, which is not always true. (laughs) Uh, no. Andy, how about you? Um, well, this week I'm really focused on kind of
0: getting some projects for school together. So I'm working on a paper for uh, my film program and editing a couple of scenes together to make my point. So that's the sort of large thing. Research and editing film is what I'm doing this week.
1: But it's really about your creative questions about, about making a to make is. film.
0: It is. So, you know, I have some ideas. I might be wholly wrong about them, naive. And so it's good that I'm testing them. But, um, yes, that's what I'm doing. How about you, Naina? What are you working on this week?
2: Um, I just had an idea for a new novel, but I'm trying to make sure there's actually a novel there, not a short story. So I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, we can talk about this later, but making a scene list—Are there enough scenes that come to mind right off the bat? So right. trying to get the sense of the largest the largeness of the story—is something actually there? It's thrilling though, because I've just finished another novel. My agent has it, but to be in that early bubbling stage of creativity is—that's why. That's why we do this, right? It's so thrilling. You feel really alive. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling alive. Yeah, it is. It's fun. <laughs>
1: um, well, let's start there with this idea of seeing if there's a novel there versus a short story. And you mentioned largeness. Is that is that kind of the, the differentiation for you between the two?
2: It really is. I mean, a short story tends to be about one theme or one dramatic event, one epiphany, a novel, you're going to have many revelations and many changes in your character. Um, and, and it's going to hopefully build into some kind of transformation. Most novels have a protagonist transforming into something other. Whereas a short story, we can use the terms like there's a shift or a turn at the end, which are, suggests that it's not so dramatic but I think today's readers of novels want something more than just a quiet little turn or shift at the end. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's funny, actually. Our uh, Charlie, our, our well, I guess we have two eight-year-olds now, our younger eight-year-old, was saying that he, he really loves graphic novels and has been resistant, although that's shifting to, to chapter novels, because he says nothing really happens until the end. <laughs> too many chapters to get through before the action starts. <laughs>
2: Well, that's kind of true. But every chapter, right, there's these if you know your character arc, you've got to be moving your character toward that end. So mm-hmm. the changes are subtle and there might be setbacks, but there are these, I guess, quieter changes. But there's still character shifts along the way in the in the novel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when he's reading, the characters don't actually change that much. So. Um, I think he is really struck by stakes in those in those mm. every, you know 25 uh, Dragon Ball Zs and they all are life or death of individuals and of the planet. And, of, you know, so there's never a moment, it's a, it's a different style, but I mean, it's, there's never a moment when it's any less than absolutely critical that this fight, you know, one book might be an entire fight.
2: Well, well, don't okay. you think that's that's really hearkening back to the 19th century novel where there was so much external drama? And then in the 20th century, we had the movement to the internal drama. Mm-hmm.
1: So, and, what, and what do you think is happening now? I mean, you, you, you mentioned that the contemporary reader sort of is asking for more of the novel
2: i i think well the one dramatic thing i've seen is the inciting incident or the upheaval or change in a life is happening a lot earlier in a novel often on page one (laughs) i keep i keep reading you've got to grip the reader faster and if you think about all the competing entertainment sources television shows movies you know video games whatever there's a lot of excitement and drama in those other forms, mm-hmm. so I believe that the novel is adjusting. One to uh, move that upheaval, the unstable equilibrium becomes upset a lot earlier in a book.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how? And to, do you look then to do that earlier? I mean, is that something when you're looking,
2: bubbling and looking forward to your new? <laughs> I I tell my students I write half paying attention. So at this point, I think I've read enough and learned enough that it's not pure creativity. There's a little bit of an editorial voice in my head now that I'll write an image or a, a scene where there's a lot of conflict. It's like that half paying attention side of my brain is like, oh, that's going to be good. <laughs> that is staying in this version because I know it's going to work. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you have a more intuitive sense now, you know, as you know, this comes from, you know, Stephen King says, I I never plot a novel, right? He's kind of got this thing, but it also sounds like as you're getting more and more practiced, you have a better internal gauge of what is going to work and what isn't.
2: That, that's true. But that said, in the last uh, revision I did of a novel, I found that my first plot point was way off. <laughs> so <laughs> even giving the, the longevity of a writing career, that those early drafts, they're still, I find that the most effective things are going back over structure.
1: And so what do you can, mean you Say way off? What do you mean by, it? like you mean, in time or?
2: I, I like to think of it as story forces. So what what forces of the story form can I put into play? Have I missed the mark be- and a force, that first plot point where it really sets up the middle of the book. If it occurs too late, then there's, the novel begins to drag. Like nothing really has happened after that upheaval or the life has changed some way in the beginning and we're still kind of languishing there. So have I, even in like draft three have i used the story forces effectively and put them in the right place so i go back and take books the novel apart over and over looking at structure those are really the early revisions that i go through is it is the structure right to engender all the forces i can for story storytelling
1: what's what's your relationship between story and writing for exploration you know like you said you're starting a new project you're, you're looking to see is it there you know when when do you do that kind of from a standing back intellectual point looking at structure and when do you do that from through writing scene and exploring
2: well um let me back up a little bit that the 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 negative part of being published is that the voice of the marketing world and publishing is now in your head and as a new writer, a debut writer, that voice isn't there yet. It really isn't. But now, you know, I've finished novel three. My agent has it. Novel four is, I think, just about done. I'm starting novel five. I know the sound of the market. Uh, and, and to my detriment, I know it. So, I, like I said, I'm not writing in a pure creative way place anymore because the that marketing voice is in my head i wish and there's times i envy my students like last night they wanted to talk about agents it's like oh i wish i had i could eliminate that marketing and publishing world voice so i could stay in that that exhilaration of what's out there for me
1: well Uh, the other problem with the marketing voice is of course it's it's not accurate or clear in any way. I mean, if we could listen, if the marketing voice had something to predictive to say or prophetic, you know, in fact, it might be useful, but of course we don't know, right? You could write, you could write wholly for the marketing voice and, and miss the market.
2: That's true. Uh, And, you know, if there was a recipe or a formula, everyone would just do it and everything would be easy. And boring. Right? boring. It would be the same thing, but you're trying to push the boundaries. What new fresh territory can you enter into? What hasn't been said? I mean, the whole process is about upheaval for yourself. There's some quote from Grace Paley, like, if you know what you're going to write at the beginning, you know, put it aside. That's not what to write about. It's not the known. So you have to be willing to upset yourself and your assumptions and and then be willing to upset the reader and in in at least what I care about. I, I care about challenging the reader, making them question their assumptions about what they think that they already know. I love that. Do you have any examples from the books you've written um, of place of ways
1: that you've upset your, you know, yourself or your expectations or up, you know, had, had that
2: kind of upheaval? Well, in the translator with Hannah, um, at early version, she was highly, I tend to be drawn to unlikable people (laughs) and unlikable characters. I find them fascinating. And, and I, I intentionally set out to create, um, an intelligent, ambitious woman character, uh, driven and, um, and and with a lot of blind spots, but her blind spots were often really alarming to me, but I found them interesting as well. So so on revision, I learned from readers, and we can talk about that, where do readers enter in the picture. I, I needed to make at least softer points of entry, and I've read, we've all probably read, you know, can you, how is the reader going to engage or have empathy for the character if they're if they're so unlikable. So that was a complete, you know, another revision going back to into Hannah and creating these softer softer points of entry. Did you like her better? Did you personally like her better in the later draft? I, I did, I did. <laughs> but I think that, you know, the original vision was to set out and put on the page um, a female character, female characters that I had seen and you know, I've been in the legal world. I, I have legal training and I was an investment banker. I've been in New York city working as an investment banker. I met women that are highly intelligent, ambitious and, you know, cutthroat. And, um, uh, and I didn't see them in literature. Mm hmm. There's not many, no. So it was a real project for me to create someone that, of the women that I had been traveling through life with.
0: Well, also, I think that when those characters do show up, these strong cutthroat women, there's not a lot of um, compassion for them. Like in the sense that, uh, you know, that's treading into territory that people are often uncomfortable seeing women in. And so I just I think I've seen some of those women, but never in a protagonist role terribly, and very, very often in sort of a bad guy role, like like a cautionary
1: role.
2: Right. right. Yeah. That's
1: that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, <laughs> uh. So okay. So so you're start, you start you you go into the book. You're 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 exploring the structure and and writing. Um, will you just talk us a little bit through? Your, your process from, from sort of beginning through revision?
2: Yeah. Um, well, it's a good time to talk about it because I'm starting something new. Um, and so I have just an idea, and I'm excited about the idea. The first novel, the painting, uh, I was taking a Japanese language lesson, and we talked about ukiyo-e, and that's the floating art world. So I came away from that. Japanese language lesson, and it was images that were filling my head and the floating art world. The Japanese woodblock prints highly influenced the French artists. That's that was the um, idea, and we'd spent all my hour in my Japanese language class talking about ukiyo-e. And as I drove home, it's like the sky just filled like with artwork flying from Japan to Europe. Mm. Like I, I, and it was eighteen seventy. You know that all of this artwork started moving out of japan they'd open up their doors to the west after 250 years of isolation it's like wow it was a profound moment in history in the art and beauty world you know the west had not seen beauty depicted in this way which was more austere and anyway the point is i was really from that book it was really drawn from an image and the translator It was driven, the idea for the novel came from an article in The New Yorker called The Translation Wars. And it was about this couple that were retranslating all the great Russian literature. And I loved Dostoevsky. I loved Pasternak. I loved, and then I found out that I'd read the bad translations mm-hmm. by Constance Garnett. And I felt betrayed. But then I got very, I just have a... I follow my curiosity. It's like I got really curious about well, what is translation? Is there a way to it, or is it really an art? Is it an art? Is it an, and there's a high degree of subjectivity involved. And I just started reading about translation theory and I interviewed nine translators at some point and one of them said they were translating Japanese literature into English and she said you know I won't take on a Japanese literature project unless I kind of identify and relate to the main character it's like what if you think you do but you don't you don't really understand that character you're superimposing your subjective experience onto this character and right. that was the right. beginning all of Hana.
1: All the cultural mistranslations possible and all of that.
2: Right and I kept hearing from translator how subjectivity plays a role especially in the translation of literature where there's subtext and nuance like what is really going on in this scene you have to bring yourself to it mm-hmm. but just like a writer a translator has to bring himself or herself to that scene to enter the subjective experience of the character so what if you think you understand and you don't so and this so whatever i the point there is that ideas for novels can come from anywhere and you because it's going to be a a minimum in my experience of a two-year commitment you better be passionate about it or curious Mm. and and willing to explore and so both of those came from that impetus. Uh, the third novel that my agent has comes from a character, a person in my life, not a character, a person in my life. They become all char- People become characters, and <laughs> characters become people to me. Uh, and he has an amazing life story. And uh, he was so inspiring to me, and he is. So I just started working from that actual person and um created a book from there. Now uh, you can ask me a question but then I start like I'm writing this starting this new one I make a scene list. So I just brainstorm what scenes could possibly come into this book. So with Hannah, you know, a scene of her translating, a scene of her going to Japan trying to meet the the person who inspired the book in the first place, a scene, and I'm just making a list and and I don't know if these scenes will make it in there, but I usually right now with this new book I have, and I just started today, 30 scenes. Mm.
1: I love that idea of brainstorming a scene list because, you know, once you start writing, I mean, I know I can get really invested in something seeming to be true because I, because I've read it because I've written it and I read it. And so before I'm overly attached, I mean, I've learned how to rip my truth away and start over again, but it's, but to to really brainstorm and then also to see if those scenes contain, um,
2: a story. Right. Right. And, and a story that you want to write. I think that's the other thing, like you can have that seed of an idea. It's like, well, right now the scenes I'm coming up with, are they, I'm checking it. Is this, does it seem exciting to write? Is it challenging? Am I going to try The other thing I think is um, to have longevity as a writer, what new thing will I be trying to do? Because I don't want to do the same thing every time. So how am I going to grow as a writer and expand as a writer and keep this interesting to me
0: yeah so are the scene lists also a way that you can estimate whether or not this will hold a novel yes mm-hmm.
2: definitely and and i'm getting a sense i'm from the list i'm looking at now is it going to will there be more than one point of view mm. is it, is it going to stay the translator the painting had shifting points of view so the translator was like another another idea for that one was I wanted to try to write in one point of view so I stay third person close in, tran- in Hannah's point of view the whole way through because I hadn't done it can one point of view sustain a novel and you know I know I've read it enough it's like yes it can't but but can I do it
1: Right and it leaves I mean in the translator, for example, there are things we don't know because because Hannah doesn't know them and and we and that's and of course that's part of what pulls us through the book and then there are things we learn but but again we're 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 and hampered's not the right word, but we are constrained by the limits of her knowing mm-hmm. and yet of course, you do something else wonderful where because it's so descriptive, we do get to experience it we, we get her perspective and we and there's some dissonance too between hers and ours perhaps because That's true. Yeah. You're evaluating
2: hers right right and then and then other characters if you're going to stay in one point of view especially close third which mimics to a high degree a first person story right. because you're so closely uh invoking her language at every sentence i that yeah. even if i'm in third person right so then, your ex- your other characters, your character web becomes really important to interject different points of view. Although I'm not going to shift points of view, but t- commenting on who she is and what she's seeing. So that then the cast of characters surrounding your protagonist, who's in a, in, if you're staying in one point of view, become critical. Yeah. To yeah. the story.
1: All right. So then, so you then now. Are you oh, I wondered if you were looking at causality between the scenes too—the build, the order.
2: Not at this point. And um, I will say that uh, the last. This will be the third book that I'm going to write this way. I don't. I no longer write chronologically. <laughs> so I look at that scene list, and I just told this a student last night. She'd hit about a page well she's in the middle of her book maybe 120 and she it, it thinks of it as drudgery mm-hmm. she, she doesn't wanna she knows she has to finish it <laughs> she doesn't want to mm. and she, she has a thesis too right so and even in the in if you're out of a mfa program who's gonna write it you have to write it so i suggested to her and i could see her eyes light up move around You have a, I know you have a scene you want to write, you know, it's coming, go there. So Mm -hmm. in the morning I get up and I look at the scene list. It's like, oh, I can really see her, this new book, you know, sitting down with this friend and talking about her ideas. I'm going to write that this morning. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about it. The energy, the excitement gets me to sit down and write and the energy translates, I hope, into better writing. And I keep going. I can generate new material that way. I'm hearing a dessert
0: first approach.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. I would never describe myself. as I have a lot of discipline and restraint, but yeah. I think I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I love that. Does that, then that means there's
1: a later opportunity maybe to, to put the pieces in order and, and spring new
2: relationships and things. Does that happen? It, it has to. So if you write this way, jumping around, going where your energy is going, where your excitement is, what you are inspired to write, you've got to go back then and create build to that moment and consequence to the moment. So something happened. Now what? There has to be fallout or some consequence to it. So that was another revision due to the fact that I've now changed my writing method to moving just jumping around.
1: Well this is something actually I have students who are and, and uh, really ask me again and again about this because of course they're not in my craft classes we generate a lot of little pieces, powerful good little pieces but all over the place. And so there's a real question of, how to organize it, this massive material, how to work with this large, you know, sort of this, it's almost like a deck of cards or something, except not that orderly. And how to, how to, how to just approach it organizationally even to, to get it into, into a shape. Can can you talk about that almost
2: physically? You know what I mean? Like, how do you actually Mm -hmm. take all these
1: pieces and get them into into order?
2: Um, The last revision I did, I went through and took the whole book apart. And I made another scene list. And I also, in that scene list, noted structure. So a scene would be there, and I'd note, oh, that's the inciting incident. that The life just changed right on page 20. And so not only is the scene list corresponding, and then I'd note the character arc. The character changed in this way. And then I'd see, well, given that, the next scene needs to be this. Is it that? So I have a whole new scene list and I've taken the book apart again, but, but melded it or, you know, fastened it to a structural analysis with a character arc analysis to check it. Have, have I moved in the right trajectory of what is, what the reader brings to a story, the expectations of a reader to a story? yeah.
1: Yeah, and I find that I that using my own strength as a reader, um, I mean that experience as a reader of of, of having expectations and making guesses about what's going to happen can be really useful in the writing too, because you read your own work and you're having expectations and making guesses.
2: Right. Another good thing to track, and I I don't know what what revision I do is to I note what reader questions opened up for the, in that chapter. So I didn't answer it, right? Otherwise you have an episodic structure. Everything's closing down and I find short story writers have the most problem with this that it's almost like a self-contained every chapter is a self-contained entity. So there weren't enough reader questions to create forward motion to carry the reader to the next chapter. So I'm noting in that scene list on draft number three or four whatever what reader questions remain open in chapter five that's going to create forward motion for the reader to keep going and when did that reader question close down so if this sounds like a lot of work it is but with each revision you know you're shaping and shaping and condensing the story over and over
0: And when you look at your reader questions, do you have a way to sort of assess those questions for the for the quality of the question to bring the reader through? I mean, some questions don't drive the story in quite the way we imagined on our first draft. Um, But, you know, so sometimes it's hard for us to recognize that. But I was just wondering in this process, are you able to then go, you know, what we don't have the answer to that, but maybe it isn't that important or. um you know the stakes about the question aren't quite as high or or that sort of thing
2: right well the check for the reader question and actually for every every scene is the i like to call it the theme so what are the themes of the book if you've opened up a reader question about you know uh you know what is the nature of humanity but the book is about loss of loved ones. <laughs> I don't I'm making this up. What if what is the nature of beauty but the book is really about the father son relationship then you've opened up the wrong reader question because it's not tied to the themes of the book. The other thing you don't want to send readers like wondering about something that isn't relevant to the character arc. So that's another check on the reader question. So you're going to come back it's like I am delaying this information about where she, you know, where did mom go? But it's not very important to the character or the themes that I'm exploring. So I'm going to, got to go back and close that reader question down and find one that at least it's going to leave to the climax at the end and the self-revelation and the transformation. That's great,
1: I love that. Um, can, can you talk about that in in relationship to any of your books specifically, like specific reader questions? And also the other question I have about that is, do you know the answer to the big reader question b- before you write the book?
2: Uh, okay let's let's take the first the first question. Um, so you know the translator I I knew that there was going to be a literal translation of a novel, and I also knew at the beginning that there would be a metaphorical translation, and that's the mother-daughter relationship that weaves through the book. I didn't know how that mother-daughter relationship would end. In fact, I wrote about five different endings, and one was they never saw each other again for the rest of their lives, (laughs) and readers, my writing group or whatever, hated it, so... So I played with reader questions about that relationship because I didn't know how damaging that, damage that relationship was. At one point that mother-daughter relationship was so damaged that there would be no resolution. And that was the ending I played with that they'd never find each other. They'd never have contact again. And you know, that wasn't satisfying. So then I had to go back. It's like, well, I've made the da- the relationship too damaged. So how can I insert more moments of connectivity between mother and daughter so that there is a foundation for an opening at the end. Right. Does that makes sense that yeah. they could possibly get back together and they'd both want to. Yeah, and that is a
1: wonderful, very moving part of the book. I mean, it's a, it's a almost it turns powerfully in that direction, right? Those are both—they're both of those themes of translation are going through the book, and then it kind of—and then it kind of moves to that relationship as really the the key in a way,
2: right? And and then you get a sense of that all of Hannah's work, or a big part of it, was filling a hole, which was the missing relationship with the daughter. So can
1: you talk, you mentioned at the beginning and here again, you know, readers, the role of readers in revision. And, and of course, if all your readers are saying, oh, I hate this or, you know, what about this? You want to respond to that, ho- hoping, of course, that they're responding to, the, to what you're doing too. I mean, how do you walk that line uh, between um, listening to and responding to your readers and yet also staying true to what matters to you?
2: Uh, good question first you want to find readers that you trust that are good close readers if you can you you might and i have had friends that have offered to read read my um, early drafts there or not early drafts i'd say more like draft 4 or 5 and they're not writers and then i'll say well mark on the manuscript where you got bored where did your mind wander so these they're they're avid readers, but they're not writers. And but that's really important information for me. It's like where did where did you want to stop reading? Where'd you put the book down? What, note it on the manuscript because I know my tension dropped. I've got to re-enter that scene. Right? There's not enough tension. Uh, and then I always ask myself and my students what what's the heart of the book? What are you trying? What do you? What brought you to write about this in the first place? if the comments from your readers are taking you away from that beating heart, uh, how do you take the comments? Like, I, you know, the early comments, I didn't like Hannah. You know, she needs to be softer. You know, she needs to be nurturing. I didn't want her that way. So how could I stay true to the vision of who she is and what I wanted to create and yet accommodate or some way like I said, provide these points of entry to make her, at least the reader, empathetic. So build in more history. What, is the, what are the ghosts that haunt Hannah that make her sh- who she is? Where, where is she soft? Where does she have connectivity? So um, taking those reader comments and thinking about them, not just dismissing them, but why isn't my vision working? And how can I find some way to make it work given the feedback I'm getting.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, will you talk a little bit about the column you do looking at sentences, which um, which I really enjoy and I know is connected to your teaching as well. Can you explain to our listeners what it is and, and how you do
2: it? Yeah. Um, uh, I've taught for years a class at University of San Francisco and also book passage called Style and Fiction and we look it's at the looking at the micro level at the sentence itself so um i'm i love style i love sentences I, there's some quote out there some writer said a student came up and said i want to be a writer do you think i can do it and that i think it was uh i don't know who but someone said well do you love sentences right. and that's our that's the painting that's our paint so I, I that's what brought me to reading in the first place, is having sentences do these amazing things. And I've always, from a very early age, I was an avid reader, not a writer, but a reader, and I wanted to be transported by a sentence. I wanted that style to contain, contain enough content that it had, it moved me. Not just the content of the story, that's something different. It's the actual way the sentence is written. Do we have a left-branching sentence, a right-branching sentence? Where are you putting the base clause? Are you using rhythm and sound and, you know, um, imagery, just all addiction? What word choice? High register or low register? So as you can tell, I'm really seeped into this thinking about this. So... It's, um, I love teaching it, and I just approached Fiction Advocate and said, Would you ever want a column like this? That's it. It was me <laughs> getting used to rejection, and what could they do? They could say no thanks. So, and fortunately, they said yes. And how about monthly? And so there it is. And I just try to read different things and approach the writer. The last column though, I I didn't talk to a writer, but it's a chance to talk to a writer about the way they think about sentences. So I'll pick a particular sentence from a work and take it apart a little bit, what's going on, why it works, and get the writer's comment about the sentence, you know, what do you think about this sentence? And then have the writer pick a sentence that he or she loves as well, and comment about that sentence.
1: It's funny too because I remember in English class, you know, in elementary school, thinking, thinking, you know, could could writers have really thought in these in these sort of specific ornate ways about their own writing? And of course, yes, you do. I mean, you really do mm-hmm. end up thinking more than once about every comma and every word choice and the relationships of the sentences to each other. In the end, you 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 really do.
2: Yeah, and you and you. You do because you're a reader and you appreciate you know, that breathless. Let's say that there's a self-revelation and you have a breathless sentence, a long sentence that goes on and on using the conjunction and and this and this and this and this. And then it kind of has its own climax at the end. It's like, wow, I really felt the, you know, the wind taken out of me. And I feel the revelation because of the way that sentence was written. So I, you know, I just love it when someone is able to write like that. And I will tell you, it's really hard to read now when style isn't invoked. Mm -hmm. I just see so many missed opportunities.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it was Annie Dillard in the the writing life. I mean, she she wasn't the one the student was talking to, but she reported that wonderful story. I love that story. Um, So it is time for our steal this segment. Um, So based on the premise of
0: T.S. Eliot's statement that amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal, we ask ourselves and our guest, what have you come across in your reading or wanderings that you've wanted to take and make your own? Elizabeth, you start.
1: I was listening to a podcast interview with Ursula K. Le Guin, um, who has re-released Steering the Craft, re-edited it and re-released it. And she was talking about conflict and she really did a whole critique of conflict that, you know, that the, the sort of the war-driven battle-focused language of conflict and the ways that everything is centered around conflict now. And and it's something I've certainly focused on and and it is a way that I think. I think, what is the conflict here? And I've looked at subtle kinds of conflict. Sometimes there are tensions or juxtapositions you know, even between images, right? So it doesn't have to be actually a, a violent conflict, but she was sort of challenging us to even go beyond that. And it, and it made me want to look more closely at what else besides conflict provides that same kind of, um, you know, Velcro for the reader. Right? <laughs> what else keeps the scenes um, alive and, and unsettled? So uh, it's really more it's a little different this week than, than maybe I usually do, but it's it's more of a question than a, than a t- tactic to steal because she didn't actually go through and tell us all the other things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, but that's but it, is, it did leave me with something I wanted to to think about and and, and then put into my work. Nina, how about you? <laughs> this is just, from
2: my mistress' sparrow is dead. We all know this anthology by Jeffrey Eugenides. And it's from the short story, First Love and Other Sorrows. by. I really love this short story as well. It's just the voice, everything, by Harold Brodkey, And he has a really great exchange and a good reminder for me, and I'm going to steal it, have my dialogue go on. I tend to truncate it. So um, if you have this collection on page 17, the dialogue exchange, there's tension between mother and daughter. She really want, Mother wants daughter to marry this sonny, this boy who's really wealthy, and money really matters to this mother. And the daughter isn't so hot on this boy. But the exchange goes on not for three beats or three, you know, he's a really nice guy. No, he's not. He's too short. He seems to be very fond of you. He's no fun. I stopped trying to work the narrator as this boy and listened. Suddenly he's a very intelligent boy. My mother said, he comes from a good family. I don't care. My mother said, now I'd probably stop there and have her leave the room, but this goes on. It goes on. I counted it. It's like eight, eight more, you know, a total of eight, so there was so much more tension to making that dialogue scene go on beyond my natural tendency, which is to move on to the next thing. Let's get going. But there was enough there. And I really felt the tension in the room and between mother and daughter by not uh, shortchanging shortchanging the, the conflict between them. So kind of tying into your idea of conflict, but bringing it in even at the dialogue level beyond the normal, like two or three words exchange and that's it.
1: That's great. I I do that too. And that's a, that is a really helpful reminder to keep going. You can always cut it later if you have to. (laughs) (laughs) Angie. All right. Well, mine has
0: nothing to do with conflict. Um, But I was listening to a sound editor talking about laying a sound bed. And what he started with was the concrete. So if you see someone walking through a forest, laying the concrete forest background, the feet in the leaves, and then moving to the metaphorical from that, and I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing uh, to think about, even in approaching our writing. So in that first draft of really being concrete in mm-hmm. our our laying down of the scene and um, and coming back with more more metaphor, I have a tendency to sort of. I think go off and be a little flowery and be, you know, here I am in this weirdness and I haven't grounded my reader sufficiently in location or um, sort of just the whole kind of experience, not even location, just in the presence of the setting. And so I think for myself having a two tiered approach to how I look at laying down that uh, reader experience, making sure that concrete piece is there. And then I can put in the metaphor that will take a, a well-chosen noun and move it to the next level. So that's my steal this for this week.
1: I love the idea of metaphorical sound too. You know what the, the metaphorical soundtrack of a walking through the forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Nina, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Nina, will you tell our listeners um, where they can find you and find your work?
2: Yeah. Um, Well, I have a website, so my name, ninaschuyler.com. So that's, the books are listed there, and uh, we put a link to the column as well, so you could get access to that. Oh,
1: wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for coming and talking with us. It's always a super pleasure to hear everything you're thinking about and and working on. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thank
0: Thank you. you. (laughs) Really appreciate it. It was fun. Except for I'm muting and unmuting, so now I seem like I'm going. Ha, uh, but um,
1: <laughs> the emotion is much more fluid. The that's is- that's okay. the um, that's the cubist soundtrack. That's the third tier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you got to layer that in at some point. Yes, but not yet. <laughs> not yet. That first concrete metaphor, and then cubist. <laughs> From a different angle. <laughs> the eyeball is on the head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank
1: you.